Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Can you think of any laws that give government the power to make decisions about uh, the male body? There are... um Medical procedures. Okay. Uh, that, the government, that the government has the power to make a decision about a man's oh, body? I thought you were asking about medical procedures no, that are I, unique to I, men. I can, I'll, I'll, I'll repeat the question. Can you think of any laws that give the government the power to make decisions about the male body? I'm not, a, I'm not a thinking of any right now, Senator. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. I am Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Savannah. On the program today, the Friday Supreme Court ruling to overturn Roe v. Wade has sent this country back 50 plus years. Nick and I with the latest from this and another head scratching Supreme Court ruling that maybe you didn't catch last week. Uh, Plus, later on in the program, Reuters foreign policy correspondent Idris Ali is back on the program. He's going to break down the latest U.S. foreign policy news from Secretary Austin's recent trip overseas to meet with his Chinese counterparts, the latest from the war in Ukraine, plus a run-in Idris had with the Department of Defense. Maybe you didn't hear about this or read about it. It's a wild story. Idris is going to share with that uh, share that with us later on in the program. If you want, you can Google Idris Ali DOD policy if you want some context, or you can hear from the man in just a bit. Uh, first, I say hello. To my partner in crime if this was 2005 nick we would be over our singular text minutes limit right now how much we have te- texted each other this past week nick severi how are you my friend how- how's everything going over there in the severi household uh we're hanging in there you know the decision is you know really is just upsetting um but yeah it's <laughs> we're gonna get to that obviously yeah uh it's I'm top good. of mind i get it. it's 
Yeah, I, I I'll say I um I'm definitely it's a little bit podcast fatigue today. Uh, I was on I committed a little pod adultery today. I appeared oh. on the Unprofessional Development podcast. Oh, uh, so there was a marathon they were doing for um what they call Edupalooza. So they were doing different panel discussions and stuff. So yeah, your boy got to be on it today. Got to talk about our show, uh, talk about ed policy, leadership, all that good stuff. So it was great. That was the day, and I get to you know close my day with you. Awesome, man. That's great to hear, dude. Um, I am doing great. I just got a quick story. I just flew back uh, from New York for work. Um, I've been, I've been fl- traveling a lot for work over the last couple of weeks. And folks, listen to me for a second, okay? First class has maybe the first four rows of the plane, right, Nick? There's two rows per seat. So what was that, 16 people? I always tend to pick the row right behind first class. You get a little extra leg room. It's kind of a microcosm for my life as well. Can't get in first class just yet, but I'm the row right behind it. Um, funny enough. Anyway, but folks, if you are seated in rows six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, all the way back, why are you standing up as soon as we get to the gate? Why are you undoing everything, grabbing stuff? Why is it a mad dash fight with people behind me that won't let me go as I am the row before them? I, I, I never understood two things, clapping. That's always a pet peeve for everybody. I mean, did you expect it to crash, right? But the bigger one for me is always people in row 15, standing up, getting ready to leave when they've got 14 rows ahead of them, three rows of seat, and, and some have two rows of seat. Like, I don't get it. I, I never understood that. It's always made me laugh. Your take on that. Do you, please tell me you're not in that latter group. I'm, I'm okay with applauding. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of flying. I've done it, obviously. Right. Uh, so people want to, you know, applaud for a safe landing. Great. Awesome. Okay. okay. Yeah. In terms of the getting up, I, I see the same thing on mass transit, especially with trains when I used to take the train from New Jersey to New York. And yeah, you'd get there and people who have no business are already grabbing their stuff, getting ready, getting ready to come off. Um, with airplanes, it's especially funny because wherever you're going, get ready to expect the delay. Like we're all going to come off this plane. Right. Most of us are probably going through baggage claim. None of this speeds up because you sped up getting off the plane. Nothing right. changes. But it's just a, I, I think it's, it's honestly, it's a notion of entitlement. I feel if I rush and I get, do all my stuff, I have the right to come off that plane first. And what <laughs> I would say to row 15 is no, actually rows one through 14 have the right to go first. So sit your ass down. Right. It's not that hard. It's a, it's a very easy concept. And speaking of easy concept, let's transition into our first segment because it's the, it's kind of the way I feel. This should be a very easy concept, but let's get into it because on Friday, Supreme Court fired off a court decision uh, that sent shockwaves, obviously, throughout the nation. If you have not been following the coverage of all of this across the different media spaces, uh, the Supreme Court ruled on Friday in a landmark case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. This was a case focused on Mississippi's law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks. And they ruled in favor, the lower courts had ruled in favor of the Women's Health Organization, but the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Dobbs, which overturned both, you know, Casey versus Planned Parenthood and Roe v. Wade decisions. The landmark 1973 case was overturned, ending constitutional protections for abortions that have been in place for nearly 50 years. Uh, I'm going to read you a little bit of the decision here. The Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled and the authorities to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. If you don't know what that means, obviously that means 
it goes back to the states and the legislatures. Uh, they, they go on to say as well that the court reviewed the standard that the court cases have used to determine whether the 14th Amendment's reference to liberty protects a particular right. The Constitution makes no express reference to a right to obtain an abortion, but several constitutional provisions have been offered as a potential home for an implicit constitutional right. Obviously, Roe was one of them, and Casey versus Planned Parenthood was the other one. Now, a lot of people, you pivot now because, okay, what does this mean, right? It goes back to all 50 states. So let's take you inside what is happening right now across all of these states. 11 states now ban or severely limit abortion and women's reproductive rights, right? We want to emphasize that. It's about a woman's right to choose what she does with her body at a reproductive level. That could be Anything, a multitude of things, but abortion is obviously part of that. Uh, 11 other states have laws not yet in effect to do the same. So let me give you the states that have the ban in effect. Wisconsin, South Dakota, Ohio has a an abortion ban after six weeks. Uh, you have Missouri, obviously, that they announced th- their ban in effect. Kentucky, West Virginia, Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texas, and Alabama. There's a trigger ban, like we mentioned, that will go into effect with North Dakota, Idaho, Wyoming. Utah, Mississippi, Tennessee, uh, South Carolina, and Georgia have, and Iowa as well, have six-week bans that are, I believe, on the books or are about to go into effect. And then the last one was Michigan and Arizona already had pre-row bans that are grandfathered in. Okay, so those are all the states right now that have either a ban in effect, a trigger that will go into effect, now that this case has been overturned and uh, has been sent back to the state's rights. There's a lot there in terms of what happened. There's a bunch from the different protests that happened nationwide. Uh, Different cities and states had mass protests over the weekend. If you weren't following some of this coverage, we're going to get into a bunch of it, play some sound from some of it. But first, um, I want to get early takeaways, Nick, from you when the ruling came down. We've discussed this this issue before with a law professor. Kim Whaley was on the program talking a lot about what the Supreme Court has ruled on in previous uh, rulings over their their term together. Uh, We had Deepa Shivaraman from NPR who was covering some of this when the the Alito opinion was released. So this is not a shock to anybody, but still the day that it happens, and it's on a Friday, right? Mid-afternoon, kind of lost in the news cycle. And now all of a sudden this comes down. And another ruling happened, I obviously the day before with a gun case in New York uh, that kind of went by the wayside. Nobody kind of paid attention to that. We'll get into that one in a second. But your early takeaways when when the ruling came down, when you heard about this. Not surprising. You know, we saw that we saw when we talked earlier about the law that was going on in Texas, you know, what we anticipated happening is that there were going to be states that were going to basically at a state level contest the decision of Roe versus Wade in the hopes of just keep getting this kicked forward and forward to land at the, at the, at the steps of the Supreme Court in the hopes of the ruling that we saw Friday. So I'm not surprised at all of it. Um, what what I where I am emotionally is is just angry. Um, it's a mix of anger and to be honest, resentment to a lot of people that in 2016 chose not to make enough of a issue of this, particularly people who were undecided on Hillary or who in the end decided to vote for Jill Stein, Gary Johnson. Um, I want to read something really interesting 
you know, from, from former President Trump. Uh, this is a report from the Washington Post. I think it was Friday or Saturday. Former President Donald Trump has complained that overturning Roe versus Wade could hurt Republicans politically in tough districts, two advisors said, and has told allies they should emphasize that states can set their own laws. Quote, he is convinced it won't help them in the future, one advisor said, of Roe v. Wade being overturned, and would pr- prefer the midterm elections in 2024 be primarily about other topics, advisor said. Before we started this show, when Donald Trump won the election in 2016, something I would tell people often is that crazy is not a policy. Crazy is unsustainable. And that's basically what the presidency of Donald Trump was. Upon him winning the election, and then with alongside Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, basically giving the green light to pro, you know, or rather anti-Roe versus Wade justices, this wasn't a surprise. This, w- this has been now six years in the making. Where I am surprised, or where I do laugh a little bit, is seeing folks like Senator Joe Manchin upset now that in the questioning of these justices that they said that they wouldn't do this. Joe, you're, you're, you, you seem to be an intelligent person, but you sound awfully stupid right now. And to any person that signed off on this, and I'm looking also at you, represent, represent, or rather, Senator Susan Collins of Maine, you all brought this on. You all ignorantly thought that a a Supreme Court justice that the president of the United States at the time would put forward, who ran on a platform that was anti-Roe versus Wade. And the quote I just read to you points to the fact that Donald Trump would say all kind of outlandish stuff to get elected, but upon getting elected, would then walk it back and recognize, oh, that wasn't a good idea. To anyone living in the Northeast who's known anything about Donald Trump, we could have told you that this is what he does. He's wildly consistent. Want further proof? Go talk to Jeff Perlman about the USFL. If you want to get into a sports take about this, none of this is surprising. Meanwhile, I want to go ahead and point to something that Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had said. Quote, unquote, we've got to strap in, she said into a microphone that projected her voice through a megaphone. This is a generational fight. She's right, but she's wrong in a minute. Ocasio-Cortez added, by the way, this is all from the Washington Post, that elections alone are not going to save us and that voting at the ballot box is the bare minimum. Representative Cortez, I'd like to share some important statistics with you. Uh, In the 2016 election, citizens 65 years and older reported higher turnout, 70.9%, than 45 to 64-year-olds at 66.6%. 30 to 44 year olds at 58.7% and 18 to 29 year olds, 46.1%. Yeah, it's a generational fight and one generation's winning. When you say elections are the bare minimum, you relate, you relay to all of us how ignorant you are about this. That's un- unbelievable. The level of stupidity to assess it that way. Elections matter, folks. We've been saying this since this show began. I'm coming back at all of you saying the same thing. You show up in 2016, this doesn't happen. So to anyone out there that said, well, what about Hillary's emails? Or can I really trust Hillary? Congratulations. You got you, you got what's coming to you. Yeah. Listen, you said a bunch of things there. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm laughing to myself uh, because over the weekend, a friend of mine texted me. I want to shout out uh, my buddy, John in Chicago, who listens to the program. And I shared it with you. And he's like, you guys need to do two shows a week. You should be covering this right now. He's like, we, we need... We need your voices on this. Uh, and, and it made me laugh because it's like, um, I, I love that we're doing something about this, speaking about this. And by the way, teaser, 
in the coming weeks, we're going to have somebody on from Planned Parenthood to discuss more about this, about this post Roe v. Wade world now and what this looks like. But um, I wanted to get a couple of things that you you said there, and we're going to play some sound that kind of backs up what you said. But first, I'd be remiss if we didn't play President Biden's comments on what he said about Roe v. Wade uh, once the ruling came down on Friday. Take a listen to this real quick. Today, the Supreme Court of the United States expressly took away a constitutional right from the American people that it had already recognized. They didn't limit it. They simply took it away. That's never been done to a right so important to so many Americans. But they did it. It's a sad day for the court and for the country. Fifty years ago, Roe v. Wade was decided and has been the law of the land since then. This landmark case protected woman's right to choose, her right to make intensely personal decisions with her doctor, free from the, inter- from the interference of politics. It reaffirmed basic principles of equality, that women have the power to control their own destiny, and it reinforced a fundamental right of privacy, the right of each of us to choose how to live our lives. Now, with Roe gone, let's be very clear. The health and life of women in this nation are now at risk. So that was President Biden, obviously, uh, speaking there on Friday about the case. All right. Now let's get into a couple of the things you said there. By the way, President Biden, President Obama, President Clinton, the Democrats had a bunch of opportunities to codify Roe v. Wade at a federal level and, and grant some protections. We're going to get into this in a little bit. But going back, looking at the makeup of the Houses and Senates under Clinton's term, under Obama's first term, and now under President Biden and the narrow margin that they have in the Senate and, and, and in the House, uh, if they had gotten rid of the filibuster, some of this stuff could have been enacted legislatively. So there's blame on both sides. I agree with you about 2016. I wanted to say real quick, I'm seeing a lot of people in my timelines that I in 2016, when I had conversations with them about Hillary versus Donald Trump, and there's a reason why Hillary Clinton carried New York by so much more, like you said about the Northeast, uh, carried so much more in the popular vote uh, over Donald Trump, is because people in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut region are very familiar with him from his business dealings to just you know his his tirades with the media there locally from the different papers that gave him coverage, right? We mentioned it on the first, first episode of this program when we talked about the history of Trump versus the media. Uh, funny enough, if you want to go back into the annals of this show and listen to that first, first episode, uh, I wouldn't recommend it because <laughs> your ears may bleed. But um, so I thought that that was funny because now I'm seeing people that said they couldn't vote for Hillary, that were women, arguing now, how did we get here? How did we get here? Well, let me tell you how we got here. Take a listen to this clip from President Trump in a town hall with Chris Matthews from NBC's, uh, MSNBC's Hardball prior to the 2016 general election. He lays it out word for word, straight from the horse's mouth. Take a listen to this. What should the law be on abortion? Well, I, I, I have been pro-life. I know. What should I've the law? I know your principal. That's a good value. But well, you know, what should be the law? This presidential election is going to be very important because when you say what's the law, nobody knows what the law is going to be. It depends on who gets elected because somebody's going to appoint conservative judges and somebody's going to appoint liberal judges depending on who wins. I've so, never understood the pro-life position. Well, I never understood it because I understand the principle. It's human life as people see it. But what crime? What? Well, what crime is it? 
Well, it's human life. No, should the woman be punished for having an abortion? Uh, look, uh, I would say that it's a very serious problem, and it's a problem that we have to decide on. Uh, is it's very? But you're I mean, forbidding you it. Say, well, wait. Are you going to say put them in jail? Are you, is that? Well, the no. What I'm that asking you, about? because you say you want to ban it. What's I, that I mean? Would, I am against. I am pro-life. Yes. What is ban? How do you ban abortion? How do you actually do it? Uh, well, you know, you'll go back to a, a position like they had, where people will perhaps go to illegal places. Yeah. But you have to ban it. Do you believe no, in? But, but you're, do you believe you're, in punishment for abortion? Yes or no? Is principle uh, the answer is that there has to be some form of punishment for the woman yeah there has to be some form literally said it in a town hall there has to be some form of punishment for a woman okay um well we're going to get into a couple exchanges that i saw around the media specifically right-wing ecosystem i want to get your takes on something that i heard come out of kelly McInerney's mouth that i think is one of the dumbest things i've ever heard uh, that these two ears have ever laid uh, uh, listening to, uh, for lack of a better term, in my 40 years on this planet. Um, and then something from the protest that I thought was has been making the rounds on social media. If you haven't seen this, um, you're going to want to listen to this because it's been making the rounds. It just happened. I wanted a protest recently over the weekend. But let me give you some of my takes when this came down. I, I was talking about this with some friends up, up in New York over the weekend. Um, I, I feel incredibly uncomfortable talking about this, not because of my positions on this, because I am not a woman. I am not a woman. Why would I tell somebody else what they should do with their body? I'm not a woman. Why am I telling somebody else what to do with their body? Now, I was talking with a friend of mine from London, who's a dual citizen now here in the States. And we both had the same takeaway. What's it to you? What is it to you? How does it affect you? It, it shouldn't. Just like I have qualifiers and conversations with people now that are of that Newsmax OAN watching elk. The qualifiers are, is Joe Biden president of the United States? Who's the president of the United States? And then is he duly elected? If you can't answer both questions, that's it. The conversation's done. So I say to people right now, if you're listening to this program, Okay. And Friday's ruling made you happy, right? Why? Are you a woman? The qualifying question, A, are you a woman? If you are, and Friday's ruling made you happy, then now abortion will become illegal in almost half of the states here in the US. Email us at canwepleasetalkpodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear your rationale about this because this was something that was posted on Twitter where a woman was talking about you know, she showed a picture of her son and she was like, I was told to, I should get an abortion and I didn't. And look at him now. And the lady underneath the first comment underneath. Yeah. You had a choice and you chose to keep him. What don't you get about this? I, I don't, I, I feel incredibly uncomfortable talking about this because I am not a woman. Like I do not get why this bothers people. And for anyone who's listening, that goes back to the vaccine argument. We've, we've made this parallel a bunch you can't, you don't have to get vaccinated. You should. But if your job tells you you have to do it to come back to the office, to return to a safe workplace, that private company, you got to do it or kick rocks. I don't see the same ire when you, when, when they tell you to get drug tested. So I don't get how this, this, how this got wrapped up into religious beliefs. I'm a Christian man myself. I don't, the Bible doesn't talk about shaming people for abortions. The Bible tells you to not judge. It literally says it in there. 
whoever's reading Bible passages, let me know when you get to a certain book and I'll show out the passage for you where it says to not judge people, that only our, ma- our maker and creator can judge. So why are you judging somebody for doing that? Are you, you wanted to chime in on something like that because I want to play this Kaylee McInerney clip because it kind of feeds in perfectly to what I was talking about with this mentality that people have as to why this affects them. But go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm going to respectfully push back when you say, you know, why as a man do we, should we talk about like not being comfortable? And I think that may be the problem is that as men, we should be speaking up. And what we should be saying is listen to women. Of course. That just, as, just as you were yeah. saying, well, is that, you know, where, I mean, when you look again, if you, if you look at poll or um, voting data for Trump, you know, Trump says what he did, you know, to Chris Matthews, you still look at the numbers and you still see that men, yeah, you know, I'll save you all the polling, the data here, but men by majority voted for Donald Trump. And I'm going to ask all of them, why? To, to your question, that's the, that's the same place I'm in right now. Why? A person who's pro-life, allegedly, and I say allegedly because I have to stress this, the pro-life movement seems very vocal about this issue of abortion. Where the hell were they at Evalde? Where the hell were they at, Col- at Columbine? Sandy Hook, Virginia Tech, Aurora, Colorado, Oxford, Michigan. I can just keep on going. They never show up because they're full of it. It's never been about pro-life. It's been about being anti-woman. Notice at the beginning of the pro-life movement ran around the 70s. You know what also happened in the 70s? The burgeoning of women in the workplace, in positions that had not been available to them before. Do you think that's an accident? No, absolutely not. Control women's bodies, you control their ability to be elevated in society. And that's all that's ever been. It's been a completely anti-woman argument. And if you are one of those folks who do believe, man or woman, in the, in the pro-life movement, I, also, I would also like you to show your receipts. Are you also there for Moms Demand Action? Are you also there in support of the Sandy Hook Project? Are you also there for the anti-gun argument? If not, kick rocks because you're full of it. I mean, you're not, really, you're not necessarily pushing back because we both agree on it. Like Men should be more vocal in speaking up. Ladies, if you listen to this program, I'm with you. I'm an ally and an advocate. I am raising two little girls just as Nick is. Um, I'm taken aback by this and 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 what this ruling had does. I'm I'm talking more in the broader sense of like, why would I ever tell a woman, right, who is pregnant, potentially like with my child, I'm not carrying it. Like it's you, it's your body. You decide wh- where we go forward from here. Um, so speaking on that, um, I want to play. One of the dumbest things I have ever heard said on national television and a shame to my former employer. It's not really a shame. How much more can we shame the network? But a shame to them for having this woman, A, as a contributor, and then B, as the voice, as, as, as one of the contributors, female-wise, I only saw, there was a, there was a stat the other day from, uh, about Fox News had, uh, once the ruling came down over a 24-hour period, 65 men. That were contributors on the program talking about abortion. One woman, and that one woman was Kaylee McInerney. And I was like, okay. And then she said this on air. Take a listen to this. AOC, uh, you played that clip from her saying, this is my body and I have a right to it. You do have a right to your body, AOC. Absolutely. You do not have a right to a body that is in your body that has, I'm sitting here 17 weeks pregnant. I felt my baby move before I came onto the air. This baby has a separate heartbeat. This baby has a separate DNA. This baby has separate arms and legs than me. I do not have a right to that body. I do have a right to mine, but not to a separate body. Nick, Nick, you have a right, that house that you own, you have a right to that house. 
but I should be able to come in there and take all your furniture. It's not yours. Apparently. A- apparently. I, I, wait, here's wait, wait, wait. the thing. Okay, no, I go. If I wish, I wish, she says she's 17 weeks pregnant there. Wish her well through the pregnancy. Hope she has a baby uh, that's healthy, okay, and happy. But I wish I was a male nurse at the hospital she's delivering at. And when that baby came out and they plugged the holes and the baby's, you know, breathing and everything's fine, then we just take it away and just say, oh, well, this baby's not yours. You're not entitled to this baby. Didn't you say that on air uh, back in June of 2022, right? Because it was, I know it was in your body, but it's, you're not entitled to it, right? I thought that was one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. And I cannot say this more frankly. Uh, if you're listening to this program and you just heard Kaylee McInerney and your first inclination is to go, yeah, I agree with what she's saying. Do me a favor. Stop following me on social media. Stop listening to this program. Do, do me a favor. I, family included. My wife will attest to this. I love a few things in this life be, beyond my family, my love for the Las Vegas Raiders and my Scarlet Knights. One is Chinese food. The other is holding grudges. I live for holding grudges. I have no qualms knowing that I can happily hold a grudge. If you feel that a woman, <laughs> what Kaylee McInerney just said right there, that you are entitled to your body, but not the body inside of you could be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. If you're on this, and I'm using air quotes for people who can't watch us on YouTube, this pro-life argument, because it's not pro-life once the baby's born, as we've seen with all these school shootings, and they're saying, oh, we should lock the classrooms. Yeah, we should give teachers guns. But wait a minute, we don't trust them with the textbooks. Get out of my life. Do me a favor. Stop listening to this. Stop following me. My follower account goes down. I'll realize who it is, and I will happily cross them out of my life. Because that is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. And I was like, I have to grab the sound from that and play it. Go ahead, Nick. I want to get your takeaways. And, and real quick, I'm going to play one other clip of an exchange around the Democratic Party of, from one of the protesters that said something really impactful and profound. But go ahead. Let me get your quick takeaways on Ms. McInerney. You know, I understand this idea that at that time in the pregnancy, it's a separate heartbeat. And you want to make the argument that, that the, the fetus has a right to be born. I'm willing to hear that argument. What that. I've always been wildly frustrated by is that same energy seems to disappear when we talk about guns, when we talk about war, you know, when we talk about poverty, hunger. There's none of that there. The Republic, because Kaylee McInerney represents basically the Republican Party's argument here. And it's so wildly consi- inconsistent. I can't take you all seriously. So when you say, and, and to your point about the logic flaw there, Watch what happens when you're a parent and you believe that nonsense of, well, it's an independent baby. They can think for themselves. Yeah, I would like to see you parent that child and to make the argument of no six year old child. You you could do whatever you want. You don't have to listen to me. It's BS. Any parent will understand that you are still the primary figure responsible for that child. Whether she chooses to abort a fetus or not is entirely her decision. I don't care. It's not it's I, I can't it is not even fair for me to enter the headspace of having that conversation whether she should keep a baby or not. What is infuriating is this argument that who you think you're saving in this case, the unborn, because these same people have nowhere to be found in these other cases when children are born and they are a part of this world. And when it's that wildly inconsistent, I have to question your motives, just like I would question the motives of, of, of of an awfully silly thing she just said. You know, the other part that always makes me laugh about the argument is, okay, so they want to, somebody who is not financially endowed, 
gets pregnant. They want to have an abortion. Now you're making it legal for them to have an abortion. Okay, I don't have money. So can I take advantage of some of these government programs in my state so that way I can afford it? No, 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 no. You got to work hard and take care of the child. Which one is it? They, they can't take it. You want them to have it, but then they can't take advantage of the social programs that are available across states to be able to care for this child. No, no, I don't want, I don't want that tax out of my hard-earned paycheck. Go ahead, Nick. Something, something I will also share, though, is four states where there are Republican governors, uh, currently the states of Maryland, uh, states of Massachusetts, there's two others I'm forgetting at the moment, have already come out and said that they will not, they will not push forward for an anti-abortion agenda. They recognize their states, and I would argue they recognize it politically, but they are at least taking the cue of their state to make that decision. I also, you know, it's a pretty difficult, not difficult conversation. It's a frustrating one. And if you've all been listening to my voice, you can sense it. But I want to honor for a moment companies that are stepping up, companies that have said, listen, if you have to travel out of state in order to get an abortion, we got you. In that case, I would like to shout out just a few, Disney, Paramount, Netflix, Condé Nast, publisher, Meta, which I think used to be Facebook, Warner Brothers, Comcast, Sony, Intuit, BuzzFeed, Duolingo, Dick Sporting Goods, who is offering up to $4,000 if you have to travel for an abortion, Patagonia. Previously, back in May, when uh, Sam Alito's comments were being revealed of an early decision, companies such as Amazon, Zillow, Apple, Lyft, Uber, and a few others had all came forward and say preemptively, we will make sure that you have the right to an abortion. We will do what we have to within, within like a financial reason in order to make that happen. So as dark as a day it was a couple of days. Has it been? There are companies right now stepping forward. And what I would ask to any of you who are employed, check with your company now. Find out if they have a policy in place, if they're willing to assist you. Because that to me right now, if you are a prospective employee, that is one of the first things you better ask is, are they willing to go that extra mile for you? But it is very funny that you have these multi-billion dollar companies coming forward and saying, Damn the Republicans. We're going to do what's right for our employers. That gives me hope in where and where we are right now. Yeah, very well said. Um, before we go to break, I did want to play. This had made the rounds across social media. I'm not sure if it happened uh, early Sunday or Saturday. Protests were happening nationwide. I mentioned in a bunch of different cities. And I mentioned about the different Democratic administrations from Clinton, Obama, uh, and obviously Joe Biden currently that have had chances, ample opportunities to codify Roe v. Wade. And an MSNBC exchange with somebody out there uh, protesting uh, has kind of gone viral. And I thought it was really interesting what she said. Take a listen to this. Um, so I received a text message from Joe Biden's campaign yesterday saying that the Supreme Court had overturned Roe versus Wade and that it was my responsibility to then rush $15 to the Democratic National Party. Um, and I thought that was absolutely outrageous because my rights should not be a fundraising point for them um, or a campaigning point. Uh, they have had multiple opportunities to codify Roe into law over the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and they haven't done it. Very well said. Um, that woman appeared to be like in her early 20s. Uh, and we mentioned about there's some blame to lay on both sides of this. We have a Democratic strategist coming on in the coming weeks to talk about the midterms and different issues that the Democrats can obviously go out there and, and, and placate to not only the base, but other moderates from other side of the aisle and try to get them to vote for so many House and Senate seats that are open. But I would love to get the man who leans the most left here on this pod, or at least has been accused by our, our listeners, 
when you when you heard that, uh, because I know it was on MSNBC, I think you saw it on Twitter as well. Um, what were some of your takeaways from what that that young woman said? First up, did you vote in 2016? Right. Because right now I have a huge problem with your demographic in this conversation. I got to be honest um, real quick. I, I think just looking at her and again, I don't know if she was old enough to vote. She looked to be about 21 maybe maybe 2021 22 like in that range yeah. but but let's say but that's let's say fair. that's fair but i but i mean to her and her generation i would ask did you show up in 2016 because that's what matters um i do agree that it was once again another lost opportunity by democrats to to do the right thing at a congressional level um this also sounds a little familiar to what happened with the the removal of the voting rights act in um 2013 you know, Justice Roberts, I think it was 2013 and 2011, I always forget. Um, at the time, Justice Roberts made the argument that the reasons for the Voting Rights Amendment are no longer in existence. You know, racial bias is not playing a role. We're not, you know, <laughs> we're not. I'm laughing because it's so it's so stupid, but <laughs> um, but made the argument that states don't need these federal protections anymore. And within seconds, within days, rather, about 11 states came forward with voter ID laws and all these different provisions in place to make it a little bit harder to vote in their state. That basically is a very similar situation to what we saw here, that Democrats, when they've had opportunities to be in the majority, simply trusted the court to continue to do the right thing and not and did not take the effort to try to codify this at the congressional level. I am interested in when I heard Sarah Joe Manchin's comments about the decision on Friday, that is he in he and Senator Sinema going to get into a room together and say, you may we may have re, we may have to rethink the filibuster because I doubt it, it. that I, I doubt it too. But this may have to be the reflection moment where you recognize that you that this is the opportunity that if, if, if you're going to try to take that shot right now to try to end the filibuster in order to get what is ne- needed to codify and get into law federal protections, that may be what's necessary. But I agree with you. I to end the filibuster. I just don't see those two folks doing it. But I do hope that across this country, anyone that was on the fence about not voting, just recognize the in- the impact of of that passivity in that effect. And once again, in the state of Pennsylvania, we got to work our damn hardest to make sure that our Democrat, unlike Dr. Oz, represents our views, which is a pro-choice matter. Well said, we'll leave it there. Uh, when we come back after the break, like I mentioned, he's been on the program before. If you remember our episode about Afghanistan and everything that happened there with the U.S.'s withdrawal and the attack on Kabul, uh, Idris Ali is a foreign policy correspondent over at Reuters. He comes back after the break. We're going to talk about everything that's happening on this whirlwind trip that Secretary Austin was on meeting with Chinese counterparts, the latest from Russia and Ukraine, and that wild story from Idris and his running with the DOD after the break. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Nick, as always, our podcast is sponsored by the good folks at Athletic Greens. Athleticgreens.com backslash emerging. Best place to go for that nutritional health. But you know what? I'm going to do something different here because this is like a 90s infomercial. I'm Ron Pupil right now, and we have a walking testimonial of how good Athletic Greens is 
for your immune system, your gut health. And his name is Nicholas Saveri. Nick Saveri, tell the people how good Athletic Greens has been to you. It's not good. It's phenomenal. Oh, um, recently, you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I haven't drank a whole lot lately. You know, raising two kids, obviously, you know, you can't wake up hungover anymore. I'm I was going to say, man. Yeah, I was going to say you should be drinking more. But, but, yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> there's that too. But right. uh, one of the things that's great about Athletic Greens, of the many great properties, is restoration. You know, the other day it was Father's Day weekend. My parents were over, had a couple of glasses of wine. You know, you know, different than normal lately. Um, next day I woke up and you you could feel it again. Forties drinking, not the best. Right. And yeah, I had my shot in the morning. Again, it's just you know you got the little spoon come in the bag. They make it super easy. Eight ounces of water, or in my case, I actually between eight and twelve ounces. Anyway. Right. Um, you just drink that empty stomach immediately. The, those effects that we know all so well since our 20s, gone. Gone. Wow. No headache. Just felt recharged. That with my cup of coffee, like you're just good. You're good for the day. So, you know, the properties in Athletic Greens have always been helpful. I'm almost done with my first bag. I'm excited to get my second. And we've talked about packaging before, the colors, the sp- you know, the spoonful. It's It works magic, honestly. Thing. That's a testimonial right there, folks. If you're asking yourself, what is Athletic Greens? These guys talk about it all the time. Athletic Greens, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing, just like Nick gave you in that example, 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that are going to help you start your day right. And this special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, the energy, recovery, focus, and aging for our over 40-year-old Nick Saveri with two kids chasing them around the house. Folks, listen, right now it's time to reclaim your health, arm that immune system with a convenient daily nutrition, just one scoop and a cup of water. The man just told you, you don't, you don't need to listen to anybody else. Nick Saveri just told you. That's it. No need for all these different pills and supplements out there. And to make it easy for listening to this show and being a loyal listener, can we please talk? Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D, five free travel packs with that first purchase. All you have to do, we've said this a bunch, go to athleticgreens.com backslash emerging, E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G, to take advantage of this amazing offer and take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, he's back with us a second time. He's a fantastic foreign policy correspondent over at Reuters, and that is our buddy, Idris Ali. Idris, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping back on the podcast with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Idris, I wanted to ask you, um, because you know we follow each other on social media, we're going to get into some of your trip and following Secretary Austin all over the globe. You, know, you were in Singapore, you were in Brussels, so we want to hear more about that. Um, but first, you, know, you had a huge run-in with DOD, on a recent flight where they confiscated your phone. And I saw this, I reached out to you. I was like, this must've been crazy. Can you tell us a little bit more, our audience who maybe didn't follow it? There was a political subsequent article about it. There was a retraction of their policy. Tell our audience a little bit about what happened to you on this recent flight. Yeah, so this was a trip with the Deputy Defense Secretary, Kathleen Higgs, and we were heading to Norway. This is now um, earlier this month. 
feels like a lot, a lot longer. Um, but basically, um, I mean, just some background. I am not an American citizen. I'm a Canadian and Pakistani, so not, not an American citizen. Um, but I've done about 50 trips with DOD officials, which is basically you travel in the plane of whoever the principal is, right? In this case, it was the deputy defense secretary. Um, and what basically happened was um, the Air Force had instituted a new policy um, just a couple of days before our trip um, that no non-US citizen would be allowed to use any electronic device on board an Air Force plane. That, you know, it's, it's usually not a problem because there are not many foreigners traveling on US military planes anyway. Um, but there is this, frankly, very rare instance where there is a non-US person who happens to be a reporter traveling on a U.S. Air Force plane because he is covering um, yeah, the Defense Department. Um, so we get on the plane. Um, I had been sort of told before by the Pentagon, like, hey, th there's this new policy. Um, it seems to be new, but we're working to get you an exemption. We're, we're pretty optimistic that we'll, we'll get it. So, you know, it was sort of like, okay, the, you know, that they're working it out. So we get on the plane. Um, we got on from Joint Base Andrews in Maryland. It's about an eight-hour flight. We take off. I'm using my phone, no issues. Um, about 10 minutes into the flight, um, one of the crew members comes and talks to, to one of the press officers um, and, and sort of lets them know, like, hey, this is the policy. We He, he can't use his phone. Yeah, I wasn't particularly thrilled, but I had been sort of told, like, hey, there's this new policy. So I was like, okay, clearly there's been some miscommunication. I'll deal with it when the trip is over. So I turn my phone off and put it in the front pocket, um, you know, seat back pocket. Um, another 10 minutes pass. And then, um, you know, the, 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 another flight uh, crew member comes um, and then, you know, lets them know again, like, hey, not only can he not have his cell phone, can he not use his cell phone, he can't have it and we physically have to take it away. Um, so they brought a Faraday bag, which essentially is a bag which blocks electronic signals coming in and coming out. And they asked me to like physically give my phone over, um, which I was not aware would be happening. And for a journalist, that's like the one thing you really don't do, you know, don't touch their notebook, don't touch their phone. I was sort of telling them, it's like, you know, if you're like a soldier and your gun is taken away, it's one, of, it's not the same, but you know, that's, it's what it is for a reporter, a reporting device. So anyway, so I'm pretty unhappy at the time. Um, we land, I, you know, shoot off a couple of emails to, to the Pentagon, um, and, and we're now in Norway, right? So we're seven hours ahead. Um, and I go to bed because, you know, it's like 11 PM, um, to their credit, when I wake up, the Pentagon has, has sort of messaged me saying, look, we're really sorry about this. It's totally unacceptable. Um, you won't have any problems, um, going forward, but left the question, like, what is this policy? So a couple more hours pass by, and I'm very lucky to have very good colleagues in the Pentagon press corps who very quickly sort of it took up the issue. We have a Pentagon press association, which sort of started reaching out to DOD officials first thing in the morning. Um, and within a few hours, the Air Force, A, firstly published what their policy actually was, and then said, we were wrong we messed this one up and we're just going to rescind the whole thing. And, and, you know, this was our bad. So, you know, it was one of those things where like probably could have let it go after the first instance where they apologized. But I also realized, you know, I work for Reuters. 
as a non-American. So I, I feel like I'm in a position of privilege. Whereas if I was a reporter with an outlet that didn't have the same reach, you know, would it have gotten so much attention? Would it have been rescinded? So it's one of those interesting scenarios with, again, I've been on like 50 trips now with DOD officials. It was the first instance and it was A, very surprising. And B, I was like, okay, we need to like, not just me, my, many of my great colleagues were like, this is unacceptable. Um, and it, you know, it's one of those things that, frankly, like the Trump era administration was terrible for press freedom in many ways. But even during their tenure, nothing like this happened. So, yeah. Idris, on that flight, are you the only person who is consider- would be non-U.S. Uh, citizen? Yeah, yeah. And uh, in our press corps, in the Pentagon press corps, um, there's obviously a very large press corps. But if you talk about the core, sort of the, the outlets you would think of, it's just me and another um, a friend journalist who would be considered non-American. So, yeah. But on that flight, I was the only one. So when you were looking through or when it was released, um, the actual details of that policy, did that gel with what you were experiencing with the uh, the different levels of confiscation? Ask them the way the way you want to ask the question. Come on. I want to say clear the lane. Go ahead. So I I just I just think it's interesting that two people who who were involved in this, you know, uh, checking out your phone. Neither of which I don't think are checking passports. I mean, am I wrong on this? Because like I think you're saying members of flight, right? So I don't know if they're flying the plane or like what they're doing on the plane, but they they roll up on you conspicuously mm-hmm. and say, "Hey, level one, you gotta put your phone away," which is no different. We've all experienced this. But then level two, we're gonna hit this guy like he's a Dave Chappelle concert, right? Like you gotta put it in a little plastic bag. No, you know, we're trying to provide you know protect from a, you know, an EMP. Like this is insane. Yeah. I'm just saying. I'm. Just saying, had this been someone you know of British descent, perhaps this is uh, looked at differently. I mean, all I'll say is two things. Uh, this was the first time this was ever used this this policy. So I, you know, I don't know if there were instances where I was in the reporter and it was not used. And the second thing is, um, I did read the policy, and the folks on the plane did go further than the policy because the policy said the reporter is allowed to keep his phone. With him at the time, I had not seen the policy because they wouldn't release it, right? Nor is it your so, responsibility to know the policy, right? right. Like, so policy that like that's, right. that's yeah, not for right. the reporter's job. Like, that's if it's a security protocol, that's fine. But yeah. I, I'm not surprised they they went one step further. I'm just curious why. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we leave it there. We leave it Move there. Yeah, it is a question. I don't know. I I defer back. I <laughs> I, give, I lend back my time. Thank you, sir. We thank you, sir. Uh, we we and we take back that time, uh, Adris. <laughs> I'm glad that all got resolved. I was I was messaging yeah. you after that all happened. I can't imagine how I would have you know acted in that. You know, we've all mm-hmm. uh, been journalists at one point, so I, I totally agree with you about the notepads and the phone. That's sacred uh, ground there. I did want to ask you though, because now you've been traveling. I post that. You went and, and followed Secretary Austin on his trip uh, out in Asia to Singapore to meet with his Chinese counterpart. You went to Brussels as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that trip and, and what came out of there with some of Secretary Austin meeting with some of these leaders? Yeah, so it was basically two trips rolled into one. You know, usually, usually the trips we do are like five days. This was like 12 days. So the first half of that trip was to Singapore, where uh, the annual Shangri-La dialogue happens. It's basically defense ministers from across Asia come. And historically, it's been the venue where the U.S. defense secretary and the Chinese defense minister meet, um, which hadn't happened in about three years because of COVID. So it was just extra significance um, for this dialogue. And so, you know, Secretary Austin gave his speech, um, which was sort of the the main event on, on one of the days where, you know, he reiterated that what China is doing in the region is unacceptable. It's coercive. It's 
you know, just against the foundations of democracy. Um, and then, you know, uh, the next day, the Chinese defense minister gave his rebuttal, basically saying, you know, the U.S. is, is you know, inflaming tensions, et cetera, et cetera. But the main, frankly, the, one of the main things that happened was the meeting between the two. And it was the first in-person meeting between a U.S. defense secretary and a Chinese defense minister under uh, President Biden, partially because of COVID, partially because tensions just seem to be, um, you know, a bit more heightened than normal. Um, so that meeting happened. Um, and it was one of those meetings that like, no one expected some miracle to come from. But as you guys know, you know, the military is an interesting situation where even when things get really bad, you want some level of communication, even with an adversary or a competitor. And that was really the aim, which is like, hey, let's set up a channel with the Chinese, where if, you know, hypothetically speaking, there's a Chinese plane that crashes into a US plane or vice versa, I can call you up and say, look, this was unintentional. This is not an act of war. Let's not let this escalate because, you know, many wars happen because some accident is misinterpreted. So the main aim was to sort of set this, hey, let's get to know each other. And I think they were pretty successful in that. So that was uh, Singapore and Shangri-La, where the real focus was China, U.S., and then we hopped over to Thailand, which was sort of, uh, you know, we were there for two days. It was a couple of meetings. But then the other main event and the second part of the trip was the NATO defense ministerial in Brussels. And, you know, as you guys have been talking about, the main event in terms of foreign policy has been Ukraine. And that didn't change. And, you know, during the the defense minister's meeting, the United States announced a billion more in uh, weapons assistance to Ukraine. Um, and really the, the reason for the meeting and for Secretary Austin to be there was to set up and tee up a bunch of decisions. President Biden and the other NATO leaders essentially are going to take in the coming weeks um, during the NATO um, summit in Madrid, where you know they'll be talking about what the future of U.S. troops in Europe looks like what uh, Finland and Sweden's accession to NATO might look like. Um, how is NATO as a bloc going to counter China? So it was basically teeing up stuff that we're going to hopefully see um, come to fruition in the coming weeks and days. Here's obviously you're closer to what's going on internationally than obviously the two of us. To the to just to the American citizen, you know, our experience recently with news uh, from Ukraine seems to have been taking a back burner between the January 6th hearings. And and honestly, what's top of mind? That seems to be sort of our U.S. news cycle for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for the viewer or listener who has not been paying as much attention to what's been going on in Ukraine, what would you identify as some of the key developments, um, just partly based on your experience with, you know, seeing what was going on with NATO? But um, what should we be paying attention to what's pot- potentially being getting downplayed right now, at least in terms of coverage? Sure. You know, I, I will say just sort of tangent to that. I'm actually pleasantly surprised how long attention has stayed on Ukraine. I mean, we're nearly four months into this. You know, I honestly thought maybe a week, two weeks, maybe a month at most. And like, you're right, it has diminished now. But for three months, I mean, it was like the main story. So anyway, I was, I was very surprised, pleasantly surprised how much attention there was. And, you know, we can get into a debate with this was a war in the Middle East. It probably wouldn't have been as focused, but it was a war in Europe. So, you know, anyway, that's that's a side note. Um, you know, the, the main things that have really happened is there was a lot of attention in Ukraine when Kyiv, the capital, was still in play. And over the past couple of months, the Russians very quickly 
realized that they were not going to be able to take any major city in the west of Ukraine, whether that's Kyiv or Lviv, um, close to the border with Poland. And so they basically said, they said this publicly, they sort of took a step back, regrouped in um, Belarus, regrouped back in Russia, and refocused their attention towards the east. And so now we're in this stage of the war in the Donbass, where, which is eastern Ukraine, um, where the Russians are actually making slow but incremental progress um, in some of their gains. We're seeing them not suffer the same sort of uh, mind-boggling decisions that they had, which was, you know, trying to make crossings over rivers, even though they knew they were going to get struck. So they seem to have fixed some of the issues. There's still some major issues like logistics and all. But if I was sort of a listener and, you know, I hadn't paid attention for the past couple of weeks, I would say the big thing is the Russians are making progress in the East. Um, they are consolidating their positions. Um, we're also seeing sort of, you know, so that's the tactical battlefield situation, the East and the Russians not doing as badly as everyone thought their air defenses seem to be stronger now. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is much like you said, we're also seeing a situation now where Ukrainian politicians, government officials, including Zelensky are making exactly the same point you are, which is don't forget about the war in Ukraine. You know, I, you know, four months into this, there's fatigue, but don't forget about us because the war is going to continue for a long time. So we're probably in this phase where the Ukrainians are trying to convince the world, don't forget about us. The Russians are making some progress. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting because the global effects of the war are sort of more and more domestic, even though I think we're forgetting the reason for some of them. You know, obviously inflation is not just because of Ukraine, but that's part of it. Um, gas prices, um, you know, we're seeing stuff like Ukraine potentially joining the EU. Um, so there are a couple of different moving parts, but, you know, it'll be interesting, you know, if we were talking another month, I don't know how much more would have changed because we might be in this very sort of grinding situation where there's not much progress on the battlefield. You know, Dries, I wanted to get to something you just mentioned uh, a while back about the uh, Secretary Austin meeting with his, with his Chinese uh, counterpart there, uh, Defense Minister General uh, Away Fenghi, I think I'm saying his name yeah. properly. Um, um, for our listener out there, Nick loves saying the phrase, a moment of literacy, um, mm. Taiwan, because mm. there was some talks about what's happening with Taiwan. And recently there was an article about Taiwan scrambling jets to warn away Chinese planes. Can you take our audience, similar to that, you did a great job back when the Afghanistan episode, kind of explaining the different groups in the territory. Can you explain why Taiwan is such a hot button issue for the Chinese and what the U.S. does in helping Taiwan as well? Sure. So, I mean, at, at its most basic level, uh, you know, Beijing sees Taiwan as a breakaway province and as a part of China, right? So their ultimate goal has been reunification. Um, so that's the, the Chinese side of it. From the U.S. side of it, they have the one China policy, which is the status quo should remain, which is Taiwan. You know, we're not going to sort of recognize Taiwan as independent of China or not going to necessarily recognize it as part of it. It's sort of a status quo agreement, um, which is like, hey, let's just keep things as they are. So you have one force, which is the U.S. saying, don't change anything. And China, which is saying our ultimate goal is to change things, which is reunification, right? So that's the, the broader context we're working in. Um, and obviously, you know, 
Xi Jinping has been in power for a long time. And, you know, as many leaders get, you know, deeper into their tenure and, and regime, they start looking at historical precedent. And one of the things that he is believed to want is sort of reunification of Taiwan and maybe sooner rather than later. So for the past few years, we've seen U.S. officials sort of steadily increase the drumbeat of what they see as preparation by China for potentially um, overtaking Taiwan one day. And, you know, a couple of years ago, the estimate that was given by one U.S. admiral who headed Indo-Pacific Command was 2027. So that was sort of the marker when the U.S. military believes the Chinese will be militarily ready to take over. Um, and then Ukraine happened, right? And it sort of brought up this question of, well, if she sees Russia invading Ukraine um, and he sees the U.S. response, how will that change his calculus on Ukraine Will he, or on, on Taiwan? Will he see the U.S. response as not being very forceful? And that means he'll be more emboldened. Or will he see the U.S. response as pretty severe and make him take a step back? From our understanding and everything we've talked to with sources, it's that so far there is no evidence that he has changed his mind on Taiwan in one way or another because of Ukraine. And he hasn't changed the planning or sort of the, the, the dynamics of, of how he's thinking about um, Ukraine or Taiwan because of the Ukraine situation. And, and part of the reason is I think he has seen, look, the US is not messing around uh, when it comes to helping allies, which is something you could have debated maybe after Afghanistan. And the US, you know, to its credit, has given about $6 billion in aid to, um, to Ukraine, which is not a part of NATO. The US has already committed to helping Taiwan defend itself in the case of an invasion. And so that I think um, it's not a treaty, but it's sort of this agreement uh, understanding is something the, Thai, the Chinese realize that the US will actually come to their defense. Um, the only thing I, I will add is Taiwan is very different from Ukraine in that an invasion of uh, Ukraine is in some ways actually easier because it's a landlocked country. Well, it's not landlocked, but it's basically surrounded by land on three sides. The Russians can invade over ground. If you're the Chinese and you're looking to invade Taiwan, Taiwan's an island. So you have to like land, you know, craft and, and bring troops off. That means you can just mine all of Taiwan and make it so much tougher. So there, it's, a, it's an interesting question because there are similarities in, in, in the global context, but when you look at the military tactics, they're very, very different. And so the sense that I got after this trip is, you know, obviously the US is very concerned about China and Taiwan, but they don't have any evidence to suggest that China is ramping up or speeding up their reunification plans because of Ukraine. Would you say, uh, and I, when we had Amy McKinnon from Foreign Policy on, uh, before she went to Kiev to cover some of the war starting, um, I had asked her something about Putin and, you know, people saying that he's not really 10 feet tall, right? Like there's like this analogy. Is it analogous to say that Xi Jinping is similar mentally because uh, there's obviously everybody knows about the meeting that they had back in a few months ago before the war took place. And I think before the Olympics actually happened. And then um, I haven't heard much about the two of them communicating. Would you say uh, in terms of people listening out there that know about Putin is, is ping comparable or, or yeah. because you've, you've said it a couple of times that it doesn't look like they're ramping up for this 
whereas Putin was already amassing troops at a large quantity and getting ready to kind sure. of something. So it doesn't sound like it's the same type of world leader we're dealing with. That's a that's a great question, actually. And, you know, I think it's important to look at the context and, and sort of the eras both of them grew up in. Right. Um, she well, Putin grew up as a former he was a KGB spy and he saw the golden days of the Soviet Union. Right. And since then, he's been sort of aware and slowly more and more obsessed with seeing the heydays of of the Soviet Union or Russia, right? So that was something that's very much been in his mind. And he's been in power, you know, in the, since the early 2000s. So it's something that I think he has wanted to do. He's getting older. There's some reports he's sicker, you know, he's not physically well. Um, and so he's probably more on this narrow bridge towards like, I want to fulfill my destiny um, in a way that she doesn't appear to be, which is not to say he's not there, but he's very different, you know, in, in terms of, I think he is more aware of sort of the weaknesses that China has, um, the strength that China has as well, but sort of the shortcomings and, and sort of like, you know, we can't do something. I, I, he is more um, willing to accept complete information, whereas Putin appears to be less willing to listen to information that does not uh, support his worldview, whether it's on Ukraine or other stuff as well. I think she, she basically appears to be more self-aware and aware of the world. Um, and I think so, so that's that's the major difference. I mean, and, and, you know, China and Russia as countries are totally different, right? China is this ascending economic and military power, whereas Russia's economy was probably not strong to begin with and has sort of been bat battered by sanctions. And so they're very interesting and very different. And, and you know, the way she has gone about sort of pushing Chinese power isn't militarily, it's a lot of soft power, right? Giving loans to countries um, and then, you know, sort of then trapping them, the debt trap, right? Trapping them with loans and then making them beholden to you and sort of, you know, giving aid and then, you know, sort of winning them over to your side. Whereas Russia is pretty much brute force as we're seeing, right? So uh, they're very different in their approaches, not just to, in terms of their background, but how they see uh, projecting power of their respective countries. China, the debt trap. That sounds like a great book. <laughs> you should put yeah. that out at some point. Idris, um, looking ahead to uh, U.S. foreign policy, the president's upcoming trip. Um, in your estimate, from what you're from what you're seeing and understanding, you know what seems to be the what seems to be the goals for the Biden administration coming up, um, just from these upcoming visits, and what is the trajectory of in obviously in an election year, you know, for the midterms and such. Like, what's your sense of U.S. foreign policy as it relates to a world beyond the focus of Ukraine? I think when we last spoke, it was uh, during the middle of Afghanistan or towards the end. I think of Afghanistan, toward I yeah, toward I think withdrawal had just happened, and then you were breaking Correct. down for us what the Pentagon yeah. had noticed and just things that we were just not getting enough context around um, in terms yeah. of analyzing the withdrawal. Yeah, and I think at that point I've I had given a very poor grade to, to the Biden administration for their foreign policy, which I obviously stand by. Um, things have changed, I think, since then. Their 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 approach to Russia and the way they've been able to galvanize. Um, countries in NATO and Europe who don't always see eye to eye. I mean, you know, countries like Hungary are in NATO, which is wild to think because Orban, um, their president, is pretty authoritarian, but he's gone along with so many of the things that NATO has wanted to do. So I would give them pretty high marks on Ukraine and Russia. 
um, in, in terms, and, and so that's going to be a big area of focus, not just in the coming weeks, but I think going forward, because there's no sign that Putin's going to back away. So I think that aspect of their foreign policy is pretty solid. And I think if I'm someone at the White House or the National Security Council, I'm going to, you know, harp on it a lot because, you know, I've been successful in ensuring that Russia does not meet its goals in terms of invading Ukraine, you know, for at least four months, which is pretty remarkable. So that's a positive. The other side of it is, you know, you were sort of asking, what is the goals? Other than Ukraine, I'm really unsure what their foreign policy goals are. You know, if you had asked me that question before, it would have been sort of promoting democracy, um, sort of the, the American exceptionalism, American ideals. And then you see him going to Saudi Arabia, right? Which is something President Biden had said he would not be doing after the murder of journalist and American citizen, Jamal Khashoggi, but he's going there next month. And, um, you know, obviously the reason for that is gas prices are high. Uh, you need Saudi Arabia in, in that quest. So what is the goal? You know, I think it's a very pragmatic goal, but the broader context is really unclear. Um, and, and sort of, you know, you brought up the important context of this is an election year. No politician wants to be talking about foreign policy and foreign affairs um, in a midterm year, um, in a year that, you know, Biden's ratings are at an all time record low. Um, so I think what we're going to see is other than Russia and Ukraine, a really sort of sidelining of foreign policy um, when it's beneficial for domestic reasons, I think it'll come up like we're seeing the Saudi Arabia, Arabia trip. But other than that, I really do think we're going to see a, a move away from foreign policy being such a big part of, of Biden's administration. You know, they're, they're always um, sort of wild cards though, right? The Iran nuclear deal has pretty much stalled. Um, we don't know which direction that's heading in. It doesn't look particularly good. So that could be a curveball if things start heating up there. They'll have to deal with that. We've basically understood that North Korea has basically completed preparation for a nuclear test. So if they do a nuclear test in the coming weeks, that could throw a curveball. Um, but that would just be dealing with sort of fires, right? The, the grand strategy to me uh, more, than, or two, more than two years into this administration is still unclear, right? When they end their tenure, whether that's four or eight years, I still don't understand or know what their sort of overall goal is. He does fantastic work over at Reuters. He's a foreign policy correspondent over there. Check out all of his articles and work at Reuters.com. That is Adriz Ali. Adriz, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program again for a second time. Thank you for sharing your story of what happened to you. Uh, continued success to you, my friend. We love having you on the program. You're welcome back anytime. Thanks for having me, guys. Nick, the summertime is approaching. People start moving out of their houses, whether it's renters or people buying a new home. You know what they're going to need, Nick, by any chance? Aside from movers, boxes. Exactly. And how fortunate. You come to the Kyamu Please Talk podcast, you want a discount on something, our sponsor, usecardboardboxes.com, is the best way for you to get easy boxes shipped to you with all the supplies that you need to make that move very smooth. From medium, large, extra large boxes, whatever size room, house you have, you can go on their website, click on our show notes page right now. There's a link there for usecardboardboxes.com. You enter in the kit that you want to purchase. And then at checkout, you enter in the promo code new customer, all one word, new customer. You're going to get 5% off of that purchase. Head to usecardboardboxes.com today. 
Our thank yous there to Idris Ali. Check out all of his work at Reuters.com. Download the Reuters app. I think I mentioned on the first episode of this show, AP News, Yahoo, Reuters, NPR, other Bloomberg News, other sources where you can turn Al Jazeera, where you can turn for news and diversify your news sources. Reuters is one of my go-tos. I love, I love the app. Love the work that Idris does. Our thank yous to him. Uh, like I mentioned, in the coming weeks, we are going to have some people talking about the issues that are front of mind right now around abortion, how this plays out in the midterms, how this affects different people at the ballot box that are up for election, re-election from the Democratic and Republican side. A video of our interview with Idris is available on our YouTube channel. Type in Can We Please Talk Podcast right on YouTube. Subscribe to the show, please. And across the audio platforms that we're available, Apple, Spotify, Google, leave us a five-star review and comment. Pretty, pretty, please. Uh, you know it helps boost the algorithm. Uh, shout out to ACAST, our hosting platform. We cannot do it without them. And I want to shout out everybody that listens to this program. I've gotten multiple texts over the weekend. I mentioned about my buddy, John Chicago, but I've gotten texts from other people that are like, what, what, are you going to talk about this on the show? You're going to talk about that, the XYZ. Um, having a forum and an outlet to be able to do this and to kind of move the needle, even on an individual level. And, so, you know, will it will it impact a societal level? Would it get to bigger numbers? Who cares if it's if it impacts one person? I know that Nick and I are doing a good job, so we couldn't do it without each and every one of you to listen to this program. As always, I am Mike Leon. And offering you all a painful reminder of what happens when you don't vote. I'm Nick Saveri. Have a good one, everybody. See you next time. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.